Welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And today, Brad, we've got with us uh, special guests, uh, both uh, nutrient management uh, people. Uh, we've got uh, our extension nutrient management specialist, Dan Kaiser, uh, from St. Paul. He's on, on the line with us today. And then we also have a, a research scientist at the Southern Research and Outreach Center, Jeff Fetch, uh, both uh, both longer-term uh, nutrient management uh, researchers and specialists in Dan's case. I like how you say I'm long-term. That's a nice way of putting I'm old. Well, yeah, considering you and I were in grad school together, I guess that, that puts us in the same boat. You guys are both uh, both long-term. But anyways, so so we um, kind of the thinking here today to have both of these guys on uh, is we wanted to talk a little bit about P and K fertility. And Dan, most recently, or more recently, I guess, has made some adjustments to some of our fertility guidelines in this area. And uh, another kind of interesting thing here is, is Jeff has been providing some leadership on a project that he and Dan are, are working on um, in, in relation to P&K fertility uh, broadcast versus banding um, application strategies. And so we kind of wanted to address just P&K in a broader sense, as well as talk about some more specific management issues and, and just uh, kind of take some time to chat about it. I think we've uh, spent an awful lot of time talking about nitrogen over the last year or so, and uh, rightly so on account of the water quality issues, and we haven't done a lot of P&K, so it'll be good to, to uh, kind of go into something a little different today. So Dan, uh, I made mention that we did most recently make some adjustments to some of the guidelines. Um, from your perspective, what were the big changes or, or what, what shifts were made in those, those uh, arrangements? Well, Ryan, a lot of the things that we're looking at um, when I, then this stems back about 10 years or more. Uh, when, when I first came in, we had a series of meetings, what we call the phosphorus forums. And there was a lot of discussion at that time about our recommendations, where they're at, um, where we should be going with them, looking at kind of how producers were currently applying P and K, but then also what the research was telling us in terms of our current recommendations, if they're adequate or not. So kind of stemming from that, there were some thoughts at that time, because, you know, we've seen a lot of states around us go more towards uh, what they call kind of a hybrid between the sufficiency approach and the build and maintenance approach. And Minnesota has been um, traditionally just strictly with the sufficiency approach, which the difference really between the two is that the sufficiency approach, we're not recommending maintenance levels once you get to a certain point in your soil tests. Uh, and the, so we're really only recommending for the sufficiency what that crop needs. And, you know, seeing the fact that a lot of growers were using a maintenance style approach, I wanted to start looking at more of a, a split type of recommendation that would give some flexibility in terms of some assessments and how I would go about recommending P and K just based on whether you're going to use one approach or another. So that's when the kind of the big thing is with the new recommendations, what I built in was, um, what I would suggest in terms of a maintenance style approach, uh, what critical levels to target. And then when you're beyond that or below that, what I would suggest in terms of recommended rates based on crop removal. So the new system, it um, it's kind of a similar hybrid that we see with uh, many of our neighboring states, where if you're in a low to very low situation, we recommend a fertilizer amount that's not going to give you an aggressive build. It's going to be, I think, more economical at that point because we do know that um, that 
majority of the recommendations we had, unless you're dealing with high pH soils, you should be able to build your soils with our, our current sufficiency approach in that low to very low. And then it, it's just a question then for a grower how they want to manage once they get to that medium classification. So just wanted to lay a few things out there, pros, cons, and just um, allow the growers to decide um, with those that are helping them make their fertilizer recommendations because really it's it's ultimately up to the growers in terms of their attitudes towards risk and um, just the situation they're in in terms of how to manage phosphorus. Because it's one thing with P and K that we know that um, since they are immobile, we can bank them to a certain degree in the soil that there is some flexibility in terms of how we can manage these nutrients. Dan, one of the issues, you brought up the phosphorus forums that we held uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, if it was that long, I'm not sure. But uh, one of the issues that was kind of front and center at that time was this concept of high yielding environments and that if we got into a high yielding environment that the uh, amount of PNK necessary was actually greater than what our recommendations showed. And uh, it, can we uh, finally put that one to rest? Well, a lot of the discussions at that time essentially were just looking at maintaining a high versus fertilizing a low and whether or not there was an inherent yield difference. And certainly, I mean, if you would take a low testing soil versus a high testing soil, I mean, you're, you're looking at probably somewhere around a 10 to 15% yield penalty to maintain a low versus having a high test. Um, the, the key question there, though, is if with adequate fertilization, can we get a low testing soil up to the same yield potential? And I think we've pretty much put that one to bed with... Um, with some of the, the particularly phosphorus, where we had a, a longer-term study set up um, through AFREC across the state, and it said the same thing across all the sites with adequate fertilization, the yield potentials there. So the thing about a lot of the, the things when you have to look at comparing your sites, I mean, certainly, you know, a lot of growers are probably going to look at their low testing areas and say, well, you know, they do yield a lot lower, but there could be some other factors that come into play there, particularly, um, you know, we see a lot of our low testing sites be in low, low spots in the fields, which have pH issues, drainage issues that can limit yield. So, you know, if you hold things equal, I mean, yeah, I think we've pretty much put that to bed. The one I know, Jeff, um, you know, potassium, I think is one that you and I've worked on a little bit. Um, and that's one that, um, you know, we're still working on a little bit. I think the, the picture is more clear for phosphorus. Potassium right now, it, it's more of a, I think more of an issue of just this, this defining these critical soil test levels and getting a handle on differences and we may see in responses based on soil types. And that's been kind of the, the more challenging of the two, uh, Brad. You know, when you ask that question, I think phosphorus, we've got a better handle. Potassium, you know, I think the things are going to be a lot of the same, but um, we're still some work being done out there on, on potassium, which I think is going to be kind of key in terms of seeing where all those recommendations go for the future. You know, one of the things that gives me some confidence are in the guidelines when you when you show your, uh, you've got a chart in there, and uh, it's it's when you hit that medium test level, when you've kind of got that, you you're at that critical soil test value uh, that uh, you're actually pretty close to optimum or maximum yield. You know, you have that kind of trade-off chart, and, and you know, I, I don't remember if medium. Are you like 99 or 98 percent of potentially yield with phosphorus? Is that the case? Yeah, usually around the medium, we should be within about 1% to 2% of maximum yield. Uh, if you're in the low, um, typically it'll be somewhere around 95%. And then the very low, you know, it's on average um, probably anywhere from 85 to 90%. Though certainly we know there are situations where those numbers, there's a range in those numbers, even though it is an average. But um, 
you know, if you look at profitability in terms of return, I mean, really your fertilizer is most needed when you're in that medium soil test class or lower. And that's uh, the thing that's been clearly shown. When we get into the high classification, I mean, certainly there are some circumstances where we see maybe a small potential for a yield response. But a lot of times in those cases, we can get away with a small starter rate, um, say an infer rate of 10 pounds, P205 or 20 has, has been sufficient. So, um, you know, that's one of the things I, I just wanted to lay out there and be more clear with our recommendations. Because one thing we haven't had in the past was putting those probabilities of response and then also the magnitude of response. So, you know, what the percentage um, yield reduction should I expect if I don't apply fertilizer? And then what's that overall probability that I'm going to get a measurable yield response given my soil test class? So growers can kind of sit down and look at that and look at their overall risk. Because, I mean, it really is a big, I mean, when you start looking at P&K, it's more of a risk assessment when it comes to making those those decisions in terms of your, your overall attitude <clears throat> attitudes towards risk. One of the things that I really like about our educational message with P&K is that we've gone to this uh, probability uh, standpoint of, of talking about response. Uh, uh, we've talked about this a lot with the, with a number of different situations in agriculture. I know, Jeff, you and I have talked a lot about that with side dress nitrogen. It's really not a matter of an average response so much as we get one response under certain circumstances and a different response under other circumstances. And so it's more of an issue of how many times out of five or how many times out of 10 we get a response. And I know, Dan, you uh, you were really early to move on that with uh, P and K and, and different soil test levels and whether we're going to get a response. Yeah, it's one of the things, yeah, I mean, I knew we needed to do um, because you see some states have provided that information and it's really what growers need to know is really what's that overall probability of response because it isn't like nitrogen where we know that by far, particularly with corn, that we should get a response to nitrogen with P and K. And a lot of times you look at our data, we get a, a yield increase to the, the first increment we apply and we don't get that nice response curve. So economics becomes more difficult and really that probability is, is kind of the main thing in terms of economics that really needs to be focused on, particularly if you're, um, you're a grower looking at um, the overall risk that you're going to be short on phosphorus or that you need to apply it within a certain field within a certain year. And one of the, I was going to say, one of the, one of the aspects of that that's, that's uh, had uh, a lot of conversation over the years is the role that starter plays in the overall package. Uh, and I, I know uh, um Sometimes the recommendations on starter are a little bit independent of the total package of P and K. And I know like Jeff, you guys have done a fair amount of looking at starter fertilizer and the role that it plays and what we see for a response. Yeah, I mean, I think as Dan mentioned, starter can certainly play a role when you get to these high or the low end of the high categories and not, not when soil tests are extraordinarily high or very high. Um, probably more so for phosphorus than potassium. I, I think that growers focus on phosphorus and, and nitrogen when they're looking at starter fertilizers. And it makes sense on our cool, wet soils, especially the poorly drained ones, the glacial till soils. Another aspect of our phosphorus recommendations in Minnesota is the how we deal with our high pH soils. And so we got listeners to this podcast kind of from all over the place. And uh, there's been a lot of discussion about just exactly 
how we deal with these these high pH areas management wise. They test low. Uh, they certainly need uh, uh, fertilizer because they show deficiency symptoms. Yet fertilizing tends to be a little bit of a dog chasing its tail because of tie up in the soil when it's applied. Um, Dan, what are our current uh, thoughts on on fertilizing higher pH soils? as well as uh, dealing with soils maybe in the central, south central uh, towards, uh, hedging towards the western part of the state where you've got maybe medium testing soils and then you've got high pH spots in, in various places in the field. Well, I mean, the high pH soils are one of the reasons why I didn't get rid of the old set of guidelines we had, uh, mainly because if you look at those soils, I mean, as you said, Brad, one of the major issues, if you look at particularly a maintenance approach, is really uh, can you build those soils to a given point at which you want to maintain them at? And you certainly, I think you can. Uh, the issue with it a lot of times is it takes more fertilizer to do it just to hold them at a certain point. And if you get into a year where you can't get into the field and you don't get that fertilizer applied, it's, it's much more common to see those soil tests drop rapidly. I mean, they'll drop back down to their, their um, levels they tend to maintain at. So it's one of the things where it's really not worth putting a lot of money into those. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to leave some options out there. And um, I know, Jeff, uh, you've brought up a good point, too, at, at certain times in meetings, I'm um, talking about this land rental situation, because certainly we know there's a lot of rented ground out there, too, where it doesn't make a lot of sense for a grower to invest in putting excessive rates on to build a soil test up, particularly if they don't know if they're going to farm that field for the future. I mean, really, you don't want to leave, um, you don't want to invest in fertilizer. They might leave for the, the next tenant on that ground where they may not have to apply fertilizer at all. So, you know, looking at it, um, that's where I think a lot of this falls in line too with these high pH situations is that sufficiency approach is really probably the better option in those cases. Because again, uh, pointing back to your comment or the question you asked before, Brad, we know that that low with fertilized property will have the same yield potential. And what we've seen in many of those low to very low situations is um, a doubling of um, you know our investment where we get twice back what we invest in fertilizer. So there's a pretty high return on investment in those cases where phosphorus is profitable. The main thing that we're looking at right now with some of our AFRIC projects is timing in some of these situations and it gets back to I think this starter approach where a combination of an inferral so you have a little bit of phosphate early on to get things going if you're fall applying your broadcast really is a good option for that and that's one of the things we're looking at right now is I've been seeing some interesting things particularly with corn with um, a, a greater advantage from broadcast P applied in the spring on some of these high testing and even some very low testing uh, soils with a pH below um, or uh, low pH soils with pHs below five. So, you know, the management, um, you said it's interesting looking at it, the management isn't, um, you look at across all fields that you can do the same thing across all fields. I mean, there's certain things that are going to be better. And certainly um, for some of our high pH situations, you want to look at that management so you're not over applying and, um, you know, into a situation where you're seeing a lot of that material being tied up. So if we're if we're in a situation where our pH isn't is not excessively high and uh, and we hit that medium category and uh, and we want to use a maintenance kind of approach, um, you know, people talk about crop removal. How much is removed? Well, clearly you don't need uh, to replace everything that was removed. What is a? Do you have good rules of thumb for when we get into those various categories on on what kind of uh, a level you would you would use to maintain 
I think in our our phosphorus study, long-term studies, we showed that uh, you know even rates as low as 30 pounds of P2O5 per acre applied annually. So for if growers if growers are are primarily applying biennially, that would be about 60 to 75 60 pounds of P2O5. That was enough to maintain that level, and it often at most uh, in most uh, acid to moderately acid or neutral soils was enough to uh, get that yield potential that Dan mentioned. It really doesn't take much. As Dan said, the, the rate is not as crucial when you're looking at, at phosphorus as, um, as it, when you think about nitrogen response. It, it's, it responds to a specific rate and going above that, all you're doing is building the soil test. Yeah, and I think a lot of it, when we look at in terms of a good spot to maintain, um, you know, if you're in a rented situation, um, you know, maintaining in that medium class, particularly if you're applying phosphorus always ahead of your corn, I think certainly that's a good target for that. Um, there's no really reason to maintain a low. Um, there's just too much risk there. I mean, if you can maintain and build a soil, you know, in that 15 to 20 part per million, that's our high classification, you know, for a own ground, I would say that or slightly higher. I mean, my target point would be more around the 20 part per million because that's kind of our critical threshold if, if you're dealing with own ground with the Bray test or maybe closer to 15 um, with, uh, with a, a rented piece of ground. So like I said, there's some flexibility out there. Um, you know, what we're recommending right now is for crop removal. Um, it seems like the data points to um, uh, close to 100% crop removal if you're between 10 to 20 part per million Bray. If you're above 20, then, um, you know, it's really up to the grower. The, the main thing that we've seen is that there's really no reason to get much above 25, 30 part per million, particularly if you're managing with fertilizer. If you're managing with manure, it's a different story. But when we see overall return on investment and overall chance that we're getting a measurable um, yield increase, we just don't see it once you get, you know, much beyond 20 to 25 part per million. So, you know, it's it's more of a grower's attitude towards risk, and you have growers say, I've got to manage so many things, I don't want to worry about phosphorus. This is a piece of ground I own where we know that um, that phosphorus can be banked to a certain degree, then maintaining a higher soil test isn't necessarily an issue. But, um, you know, that's really up for the grower to sit with their advisor or their retailer and kind of make those decisions. And for us here in Extension, just to lay out in terms of a roadmap, in terms of um, some of the things that in it give them some of the information they need to make those decisions. So if I'm in more of a, a, a situation that might not just be a 50-50 split with corn and soybeans, maybe I, I do two years of corn and then soybeans, does that change the dynamics at all? With Yeah, with crop removal for phosphorus, you know, corn has a much higher crop removal than soybeans. But then when we look at potassium, it's the opposite, where soybeans generally has a greater crop removal than, than corn. And the data I have, I mean, what it does show is that, um, you know, most of our applications, particularly P and K corn, I mean, it does favor application ahead of that crop. Uh, I know some growers have been switching, particularly with, as Jeff said, the removal of K is higher with soybean to putting some soybean or K on ahead of, ahead of the beans, which I think certainly, um, I mean, you can do that, but the data I have um, doesn't say that it's always favorable. I mean, where I'd look at every year applications in a situation like that, Ryan, would be if you have a pH of 7.9 or greater, um, then I'd probably go every year. But we know that um, if you're dealing with, um, you know, kind of maybe moderately acidic, um, looking at pHs any ranging from about 6 up to about 7.5, that uh, a two-year spread, um, or at least spreading every year ahead of the corn, then um, maybe that second year putting on some for the beans based on whatever the crop needs 
is a viable option if you want to avoid um, spreading every year in that, that three-year rotation. So it's really highly dependent on pH, uh, particularly with phosphorus. With potassium, uh, the, the situations where I'd look at a split application ahead, or an application ahead of every year would be something that would be, you know, kind of a, a soil that would be more lower on the, the, the soil test end for potassium and with a lower cation exchange capacity, something maybe a, a silt loam or a sandy soil, then maybe a every year application. But overall, potassium, we've seen that, I mean, again, it does tend to favor applying ahead to, ahead of the corn, particularly in the rotation. So if, whether you want to do it but one or both years, it's kind of up to the grower. I still, though, with phosphorus, I think I'd have a small amount put ahead of every corn crop because our data does show that there is some benefit there, whether it's a starter or a broadcast application sometime in that rotation. I want to go back and, and hit something we kind of glossed over a couple minutes ago because I think it's a very interesting point and it's something we're talking about. And Jeff, I know the, the results of some of that long-term phosphorus study showed that if we apply phosphorus at crop removal rates, we actually were building soil tests in, in a lot of circumstances, which from an environmental standpoint, that's something we really want to avoid. I think most folks recognize that that phosphorus is uh, probably our most significant nutrient uh, uh, impairment in, in surface water in Minnesota. Uh, maybe long range, it's nitrates, but in Minnesota, when we put phosphorus in the water, it ends up in algae. So uh, we want to avoid uh, excessive phosphorus levels where they're just not doing any good. Um, what What's going on when we're applying what intuitively should be the crop removal rate, yet the soil test level keeps going up? Yeah, so um, the the soil test obviously is a, uh, it's an example or a estimate of what is available to the crop, but it's not a pound for pound number. And I think that that's some sometimes growers and sometimes even crop consultants think that okay if i take a pound off i have to put that pound back on or my soil test is going to go down well what's really happening is there's a lot more nutrient whether it's p or k in that in that soil uh, that the soil test is only estimating a example of how much is going to be available for crop remove or for for crop production so it goes back to that uh as Dan said, it's that probability function. That's what it's telling you. It's not telling you we have this many pounds. It's not a checkbook. And I think that all too often, and I see this in, in, uh, in situations where we're doing precision ag and we've got our yield map and we've got a constant for how much nutrient is taken off in a bushel and we're going to multiply the, every bushel from that yield map and each in, individual zone or, or management area of that field by that constant, and this is how much came off, and we got to put that much back on, and that's our precision ag prescription. And that they're just not understanding the concepts of soil testing. And it's interesting looking at some of that, too. Um, you know, I've seen the same thing with a lot of our data, too, and that's why the recommendations I have when you get above 20 part per million um, calls for a reduced amount of phosphorus being applied because, um, you, know, you know, Jeff, I think the average usually we use if we don't apply phosphorus, it's about a two part per million decrease on the Bray test yearly is what we'd expect. Um, the issue I run into a lot of times, though, with consultants and growers is if you're sampling every four years, we know that while that two ppm is an average, if you look at the trend line over time, that the numbers bounce around. You can see a bigger drop one year and maybe it's a, a slight increase or less drop the next. So it's kind of a, 
up and down, but the, yet the trend goes down. So if you're sampling every four years, every once in a while you'll catch one of those years where you might have seen a larger drop, even though it didn't affect the overall trend. And there's always a lot of concern then from growers in terms of the management. And then we get um, really concerned about hitting the exact target for what we we remove. And what we've been seeing um, essentially with removal, if we hit removal, most of our, our time we see is our zero to six inch soil test increase by about one to two part per million. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that one, we're only sampling the top six inches and the, the crop's probably taking up phosphorus from maybe eight inches um, or so dips. We might have some subsoil uptake that's um, accounting for that. And there's just and the other thing is that there's a lot of changes. I mean, phosphorus, when you apply it to the soil, isn't going to stay in an orthophosphate form. It's going to react. And in some of that reaction, while it might that material might be available for the crop at some point during the year, may not be picked up in the soil test. So there's a lot of dynamics there with it. And as Jeff said, the, the test itself is an index of availability on it. it it's not really meant where in the past it was used for, um, it was, everything was calculated in terms of pounds. It's not done anymore that way. So, I mean, it's, it's a complicated issue, but it's, it's something that you, you need to really remember is that we don't need to be that exact. Based on all of our data has shown this, we don't need to be exact and apply the exact amount removed to maintain a soil test. It doesn't necessarily, we're gonna be able to maintain it. In most cases, we've, we've shown that we've actually been able to slightly increase our soil test. So, so one of the long-term um, aspects of Minnesota's uh, P&K recommendations has been different recommendations for broadcast versus banded application. Um, there's long been conversation about that. Some of our neighboring states have even suggested that that may not be accurate, uh, but we maintain that. And know, uh, Dan, you've looked at that a fair amount. Long-term, Jeff, you've done a lot of work with strip-till, which of course uses a banded application. Uh, where are we at with that? Well, I think I could have Jeff address that a little bit because he's um, you know, been working more closely on some of those band applications with some of the current AFRIC research. Yeah, so we're looking at, at band P and K. And if you, if you remember our recommendations, as you mentioned, Brad, we've, uh, we've always given or recently in our current recommendations give a rate reduction when we're band applying for corn, not for soybeans, but, but for both P and K. So the study that I started uh, in 2019 is to take another look at this as to be honest uh, some of these uh, comparisons uh, for these these data that are in the recommendations where a lot of that was done in the 80s and 90s and you don't see a lot of uh, as much of band equipment around there other than in strip till you know we used to have ridge till and we used to have small growers that were still applying with their planters and the broadcast application has just become the dominant application. So I think it's worthy to go back and take another look at it. Uh, the study that we started or initiated uh, the first year of collection data comparing band versus broadcast was 2020. We did not see much of an advantage for phosphorus band versus broadcast in 2020 at either Rochester on a lust soil or at Wasika on a glacial till. For potassium, we saw uh, large growth and vigor and biomass differences early on at both locations and we saw about a 10 bushel yield advantage at Rochester for the band application versus broadcast and no yield advantage at Wasika, which was kind of interesting considering how much different the crop looked 
through most of the growing season. But we're going to do this study again in 2021. Um, preliminary data, we'll see uh, after two years um, what it looks like at that point. And, and what about the rate, Jeff? Uh, because I have I, actually, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll add the caveat here, I am an advocate of strip-till, but I have frequently heard people who advocate strip-till saying that one of the ways strip-till pays for itself is through a reduction in fertilizer cost because you can apply less. Yeah, well, it, it makes sense. And, and that was seen in these other previous studies. That, and the reason why that recommendation is in there is that the, a lower rate was more efficient in that given crop production year. Now, the, the caveat to that, as you mentioned, is, is it will generally affect your soil test level over time. You're going to see a reduction in soil test level compared to broadcasting, obviously a higher rate. But if the crop is seeing the same amount of nutrient and giving the same yield production level, um, yeah, you could get a benefit from a reduced rate. So in this trial, what we're doing is we have all range in soil tests from very low to low in both P and K and separate studies. And we're applying equal rates side by side in a band versus broadcast. And the rates for the very low testing sites are probably less than we would recommend if we were going to broadcast. So if there's a difference between band and broadcast, it should show up in that rate reduction comparison. But we also have a wide range of rates across a wide range of soil test levels. So we'll have areas of the field with higher soil tests where the rate comparisons would be more typical of what you would apply if you were broadcasting as compared to banding. And one thing about banding is if you look at by far and away, a lot of the data shows that the efficiency really comes into play if you're dealing with low to very low soil tests. If you start getting into that medium and high category, you really see that efficiency tend to go away. And I think one of the main challenges, particularly for those that are banding, is soil testing. And that's one of the things that um, if you're sampling yourself or you've got a crop consultant or a retailer doing it, make sure that the way that they're doing it can best represent the soil test that's out there. Um, if it is a band situation where you see more of a full tillage or more of a conventional tillage where that band is mixed in the soil, it becomes, I think, easier. It's situations where reduced tillage, strip till, where you've got the historical bands there, you've got new bands there. You have to make sure that if you're sampling that you're getting a good representative sample because I know just talking to some people that have been in ridge till for a number of years, that gets to be a challenge, particularly if you start taking soil samples between your ridges, that the numbers are going to be a lot lower. So getting an accurate representation of where you're at in that soil test spectrum is, is really key, particularly if you're, you're starting to look at modifying your rates, because you don't want to be in a situation where um, it, it, you'll see, uh, particularly with, with being, uh, your rate being too low, and that your soil test being very low, and, and not having a good representation of that where you're not applying enough fertilizer. So I think that's the main challenge is going to be soil testing in those those circumstances and make sure you're getting an accurate picture of what's out there. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit and talk a, a, a tad bit about potassium. Uh, we were talking about potassium a little bit earlier, and I think I took us back off of it to phosphorus. Uh, Jeff, you've done a, a, I guess you both have, worked uh, extensively with some phosphorus trials lately, but Jeff, particularly, you've worked in some of the sandier parts of the state where we've had issues uh, with, with potassium. Um, in cases where it's sandy, we don't have a lot of clay, we've actually shown the uh, tendency to leach uh, potassium, not necessarily an environmental issue, but one 
relative to what we can expect uh, from pro overall productivity and response for fertilizer applications. So where are we at with, with making potassium recommendations kind of based on soil types? Yeah, it's a good point, Brad. So, you know, when we think of when we think of phosphorus fertilization, we know that we've got the calcareous soils and the acid soils and we have to manage them differently. So when we're looking at potassium, um, the key thing, as you mentioned, is you've got coarse textured soils and Dan mentioned the low CEC and that's a factor. So what we found at Becker and it, uh, unfortunately, we haven't done uh, research long term at, at too many different types of coarse textured soils, but at least at Becker, which is a pretty standard uh, uh, sand plain uh, site, we've seen a lower critical value for potassium than we would find on medium and fine textured soils. We've also looked at different medium and fine textured soils. And the reason for that, and I'll, I'll let Dan elaborate on this, is the clay mineralogy can have an impact on the response to potassium. So the, the mineralogy in the lust soils in southeast Minnesota is different than the mineralogy in the glacial till soils uh, across the south central and western part of the state. So we're looking at that as well, but I think the key changes that you see in the recommendations that have been modified, I think in 2019, if I remember correctly, that was the right time, Dan, in the fall of 2019. One, one of the key recommendation changes was adjusting that uh, the ranges of the low, medium, high. So for the medium and high soil test, those ranges went up and that recognizes that there's more variability um, that we see and that a, a response to K is probably um, could be expected at that medium and soil test values and maybe even into the high soil test values. And then as far as the coarse textured soils, we actually reduced that critical value and adjusted the kind of the guidelines for when you would want to stop applying because you probably built the soil test level up to a, to a correct amount. Yeah, that's one of the main things we're looking at right now, as Jeff Mean alluded to. Um, the changes were made mainly based on our high clay soils um, going to a critical level closer to 200 part per million. You know, kind of my gut feeling right now, looking at a lot of our data, if you look at it, we probably could separate out our soils into three different categories, one being our sandier soils with low CECs, um, those with a critical level probably closer to 90 to 100 part per million, and we've seen... You know, it's amazing, Jeff. I mean, the, the study at Becker that we had for a number of years there where the soil tests, I think, were around, what, 60 part per million, somewhere in there? 60 to 70 was often just kind of the, you know, the spot that we needed to keep it at. And then, yeah, with just 60 pounds K2O annually, we were able to get some pretty high yields at that particular site. So my question on the sands right now, um, we're looking at a few things with uh, some funding from the Minnesota Corn Research and Promotion Council look, <laughs> looking at CEC. And I'm trying to see, um, you know, if there's differences between the sands, because that's one of the things that I'm curious of, because our sands, if you look at cation exchange capacity with our sandy soils, since they don't have a lot of clay, which clay is what dominates or creates our cation exchange capacity, that a lot of what comes from sands is what we call a variable charge. It um, comes from organic matter, and that variable charge is a result of the pH. So that's kind of what I'm looking at right now, uh, because I'm wondering if some of the things that we're seeing at Becker, if, if they translate out to other sands across the state, because we know we have some significant differences, particularly you get up to the Red River Valley, where you may have a sand layer over a heavier clay layer, that seeing how those things may impact each other um, moving forward. So that's going to be kind of one of the questions. I think there's some changes that could be made 
It's just a question is, can we put all of our sands in one, in one basket metaphorically and make one continual recommendation? Our silt loams have been kind of the major question. And, uh, you know, Jeff, we've had some experience um, doing some work. I know, Jeff, you at Rochester around that area on some of those deep lost soils. And they, they don't tend to respond quite as much. So I'm kind of curious, and that's one of the things we're looking at right now, of whether or not a critical level closer to what we used to have around 160 might be better for those. And then we separate then out some of these higher clay soils that um, are predominantly um, formed with smectites, um, if those need to be a little bit higher. So that's some of the stuff we're looking at right now and trying to get a better handle on that, matching it with um, potassium response. Um, North Dakota State did this change a, few, a couple of years ago, looking at the ill-like smectite ratio, making a change based on those two major clay types and their proportion to each other and how they recommend potassiums. That's one of the things that we're trying to see if we can better fine tune our recommendations using historical data, which we had a lot of samples um, still around from, and also some newer research with on-farm trials to try to get more K-response data out there. And it's, it's a trickier one. Um, you look at potassium, it's much more simpler um, in the soil when it comes to the chemistry than phosphorus, but phosphorus is uh, much more consistent in our results across many soils. Potassium has been one that's, that's been kind of more of a head scratcher at certain times in, in terms of where we should and shouldn't get a response. And some of that just, some of that comes from the fact that the, the soil test for potassium can be influenced by some factors, especially that clay ratio. And most, most of the time, um, the inconsistency can come from, from these glacial till soils here in South Central and Southwest, West Central Minnesota. So, so when you're talking about the illite smectite ratio, Dan, you're getting pretty deep in the weeds on soil science. Uh, for for the average farmer, is that uh, is that a concept that they're ever going to be able to uh, measure on their own soils, or is that just something that we're going to worry about and then kind of interpret based on soil type? Uh, or are we going to be able to at some point uh, correlate it with cation exchange capacity? which is, of course, a legitimate measurement that we really don't use uh, to, to a greater extent in Minnesota to make recommendations. Well, my intention really for this is to, you know, what we're doing right now is we're trying to just get uh, soil samples from key soil associations. I'd like to get two to three samples within each county that are major ag um, areas of the state just to try to build a map. And, you know, my thoughts there then are you just look at where you're at, um, look at if we can get kind of, because most of the soils are going to be pretty similar if they're formed with similar parent materials, that if once you know that, then essentially then you just know what type of recommendations to use. So that's kind of my thoughts, Brad. And CEC doesn't really change all that much other than maybe on the sands. I mean, we can see a clear, some of the data that we were done, we were looking at changing pH of some very acidic soils. You can see a linear increase in CEC with increasing pH on soils that we took from Becker and up by Cambridge. Um, those might be more problematic, but I don't think it's really going to matter because the change isn't that severe. So I don't think it's anything that a grower is going to need to worry much about um, when they submit a sample. Um, you know, most labs will have um, some sort of uh, identification potentially of where that sample's coming from, and then they can use that data. Then the lab can give them the results, uh, you know, based on what the recommendation is. So that's kind of what I'm envisioning because. It's about $300 a sample for us to run the clay speciation, which isn't cheap. Um, something that really only has to be done once, and it's easier for me to do it than for the average grower to do it out there. Dan, you've been looking at some issues relative to 
um, high levels of, of potassium fertilizer application and potentially uh, impacting soybean yields. Well, it's one of the things with potassium, and 98% of our sales in the state of potassium fertilizer is potassium chloride. Um, chloride, um, if you look at historically, we haven't really thought that it's done anything um, to any of our crops, although if you look at the southern U.S., there is a lot of research done down in that area looking at choosing soybean varieties that are tolerant to chloride. So when I started looking at a lot of our data, I know, Jeff, some of the work we started um, jointly, some of the strip trials back around 2010, I started to see some yield decreases, particularly in the soybean trials. And, you know, you just, you know, it's one bushel maybe, and it's not significant, but it's pretty consistent across a number of our locations. And then about five to six years ago, um, I was looking at some of the long-term data we had, and we were starting to see some pretty substantial yield reductions in the western part of the state for soybean not for corn or for any other crop that we've, we've been testing, that I started looking more into this chloride issue. And uh, this last year, we put out some studies um, with funding through the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, high rates of chloride. Um, we had a study at Becker, uh, one at Wasika, and then one at Morris, where I put on 500 pounds of chloride, which is an insane amount, although you know some group people giving recommendations for um, K balancing or K base saturation, I've seen situations where we would recommend that much and we reduce yield. And what I was able to finally pinpoint with that, that indeed it is chloride with the treatments we had. Uh, the sites at Wasika and Becker, um, we reduced yield by about four bushels on average. Uh, the one at Morris, it was 18 bushel reduction. So pretty substantial reduction, but it was a drier, a drier conditions at Morris, which I would expect it to have more of an effect of that. The main thing about this issue is that this isn't a new issue. This isn't something that just started 10 years ago. This is something that soybeans are not tolerant to chloride, um, particularly these northern varieties, that likely growers have been, you know, maybe encountering a half to one bushel yield reduction in situations where they put on a very high rate of potash. And in those effects, they probably would never see them because if you had a 70 bushel yield average um, potential and you average 69 bushels, would you even see that going going forward? So it's one of the things that I've been looking at is how do we manage potash the best we can because this is a source that we have. And the best thing I can tell a lot of growers is just to keep the rates low, particularly if you're applying in the fall or spring ahead of soybeans. So, you know, it does work. It's fine. Um, just try to keep to no more than around 100 pounds of actual potash, 60 units, K2O max. Um, there's some studies I think I'm going to do here maybe starting this fall of 2021, looking at just overall tolerance and looking at a rate response, because that's really what we need to do at this point. But um, it's been interesting looking at that data, um, you know, just seeing what we've been seeing consistently across the sites and talking to Fabian Fernandez. I mean, he saw some of the same things in Illinois when he was working down there and just these small reductions to these higher rates, uh, a so reduction in soybean yield to these higher rates of, um, of potash being applied that were never significant, but they're always there. So it's one of the things that, um, you know, at least we're getting a better handle in terms of what that risk is right now with some of the studies we have in place. Are there any other uh, concerns to bring up with uh, crop safety? If we start talking about some of the banding applications or maybe at planting applications, uh, anything you guys want to mention in regards to that? Yeah, well, I mean, from a crop safety standpoint, the two big fertilizers are you know are well three sources is a big thing you know obviously urea near the row is going to be a problem we're talk we're focused today on p and k 
Phosphorus isn't much of an issue for corn or beans near the row, except for sometimes in situations if you put inferal uh, phosphorus on soybeans, but not too many growers do that. Um, potassium, is as long as there's three to four inches of separation, you can go with a normal agronomic rate in a band, and that's that should not be an issue. Yeah, salts are a problem, and there's this, some things that you have to really look at. And the, the big issue that we see essentially are any fertilizers that will liberate ammonia in the or near the row. So that being urea, since urea has if ammonia is formed. Um, the difference between ammonium, which is in diammonium phosphate or monoammonium phosphate, DAP or MAP, is the fact that that's already in a form that's an ionic form, and we don't we shouldn't see any ammonia being being generated from that. So that's the main thing. Um, you know, urea is probably the highest risk um, for liberating ammonia ammonia in near the seed rail. So that's one of the things that I really stress to watch out for. I mean, salts can be a problem. Potash could be a problem. Thiosulfate, whether it's from potassium or ammonium thiosulfate, can also be an issue. So really, um, you know, banding. If you, as Jeff said, if you can get um, about three inches or so, if you're putting a, a very high rate of fertilizer on and a band between seed placement and the, where the fertilizer is, it isn't as much of an issue. But if it's within an inch, it's where we tend to see a big issue. And that's one of the things I really stress with pop-up. And I get the question a lot on soybean anymore is, can we put some phosphorus down pop-up on soybean? And it's just too much of a risk, and there just isn't as much of a benefit from it. It just makes more sense to broadcast it just based on the data. So that's the thing with it. Um, you know, a deeper band isn't as big of an issue. Um, if you're mixing it even within a the strip-till band, if you've got a knife going through there that isn't necessarily injecting it at a point, at, at a set point, if it's mixed, uh, as long as there's some dilution of the, of the soil and the fertilizer itself, there shouldn't be as much of a risk as well. But again, a lot of it depends on particularly ammonium that might be uh, there within that band in terms of what damage is going to occur. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground here today. Do you guys have anything else you want to talk about or mention? Yeah, I, I did want to go back to one thing that, Ryan, you or Brad mentioned here about 15 minutes ago. You were talking about drawdown and buildup rates, and we actually have some really good data on that, and I, I dug it up real quick. Um, we had a long-term study at Waseca that looked at P drawdown, and when we started Bray phosphorus in the, the medium high or high categories or very high, kind of in that 20 to 25 part per million. For the first seven to 10 years, if we didn't apply anything, we drew down at about 1.8 part per million per year. But then it gets to this kind of area where it starts to slow down and the soil test gets low enough where the drawdown is quite a bit slower after that. From a build up standpoint, I think it was Brad that asked about putting on crop removal rates and does that result in a buildup. And yeah, we actually have excellent data on that too. At both Lamberton and Becker, those are uh, acidic soils, we had a buildup if we put on crop removal of a right around 1 to 1.2 part per million per year over a six-year period. And that was when we started around the medium soil test level, you know, around 13 to 15 Bray P. At Waseca and Rochester, those areas we built with crop removal at almost two part per million when we started in the same area. So this gives growers an idea of how fast their soil tests will build up or, or draw down if they don't apply. Yeah, excellent rule of thumb. All right, well, uh, with that, anything else to mention? 
All right. Well, I want to thank our, our guests today, Brad, uh, for their time and, uh, and, and their insight. Uh, and I also want to thank the listeners out there for listening in, in to another session of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. Thanks again.